This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers, on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio brings you relevant and detailed discussions of software engineering topics at least once a month. SE Radio is brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine, online at computer.org slash software. Shubhrakar, welcome to Software Engineering Radio. It's a pleasure to have you. Hey, thank you, Jeff. Uh, pleasure to speak to you as well, and thanks for inviting. Yeah, so today we're mainly going to be talking about Node.js and um, the, the platform and the ecosystem. So why don't you start off by talking about what is Node.js? Yeah, so uh, Jeff, if you look at it, JavaScript has existed in the browser world for an, almost a decade now, more than a decade. And all of a sudden, the power of JavaScript was ported over to the server side instead of just making it run on the client side in the browser. And server-side JavaScript is essentially uh, what is now known as Node.js. And uh, this technology stack uh, is helping uh, power the transformation for APIs, mobile, and IoT applications today. And what do you mean by the power of JavaScript? Right. So, uh, Jeff, if you look at it, right, like originally server-side applications were built in uh, Java, .NET, a variety of thread-based technologies, right? And that was the way to scale applications. And it's a very mature stack in those uh, aspects. Uh, When JavaScript came to the backend, uh, all of a sudden people realized that we can have JavaScript at both ends, uh, both on the server side as well as on the client side. And what this lets us do is build what we call as isomorphic JavaScript applications. And I'll talk about that in a little bit more detail. Uh, but what's happening in uh, today's world is, uh, you know, if you look back, let's say, you know, 10 years, right, we were building web pages, we were rendering HTML. And today, the world has changed drastically. Uh, we are coding APIs, not apps. So that's why you'll see the terminology that it's an API economy rather than being an app economy. And those APIs need to be lightweight. And those APIs need to be served from the back end as REST, and rather if you can have the power of serving them in JSON, the consumption of those APIs on the front side, uh, which is also running JavaScript, becomes extremely easy. And Node.js is the technology which is helping you deliver these lightweight APIs rendered as JSON in an extremely high-scale manner, which meets the needs of uh, concurrency needs of mobile applications, IoT applications. So that's what I mean by transformation. And, you know, I can talk about that more from an architecture perspective. Well, so, so, so to boil some of that down, as I understand what you said is much of the power of Node, specifically as a JavaScript backend, is basically treating JSON as a first-class object. Very correct. Very correct. And if you look at it, uh, people used to joke about having a JSON database, right? And all of a sudden, MongoDB emerged, uh, and you know you had variety of uh, data stores which can let you persist JSON now, right? So on the front end, if you're coding in JavaScript, you have you can process JSON. If you are on the middleware, which essentially is Node.js, um, you can generate JSON. And on the back end, 
uh, which you now if you have a MongoDB type uh, store, you can persist JSON. So now you essentially have what we call as full stack JavaScript stacks evolving, very similar to how a LAMP stack had evolved a few years back. Interesting. Yeah, because you think about the, you know, if you, if you have to build like a Java application compared to uh, building an application in, in Node, it's funny because, you know, in, in a Java application, you know, maybe you would have to use Jackson to parse the JSON objects that come in. And this is actually like a big, it's iconic of like a big annoyance. You know, you have to use this annoying kind of kludgy interface to get to the heart of your JSON objects. And if you're if you're working in Node, for example, it's it's just so much it's just so much easier. It kind of co comes out of the box. Exactly, it's a you know it's a built-in uh, method, right? You can simply do JSON dot get, and you can essentially get access to the entire JSON object without having to go through the pain of uh, deserialization, parsing, extracting out, then, you know, again, converting it into another uh, protocol and sending it over the wire, right? Right. Okay. And so to separate that aspect of a beneficial component of, of Node, mm -hmm. there's also the single-threaded event loop aspect, which is like, which is a, strikes me as a totally different aspect of the ease of programming in Node. So... I, I want to stress the single-threaded event loop aspect of Node pretty early on in the conversation because I think we'll need to c keep coming back to it because I, I, I've been hearing about Node for years, mm -hmm. and but it's taken me a while to appreciate the kind of the simplicity and the effectiveness of it beyond just the fact that it's JSON. So, mm -hmm. so, so, or that you can use JSON, like I said previously. So explain the, the single-threaded event loop aspect. Yeah, so... Think about it this way, right? Normally, if you, you know, there's a big confusion about, hey, you know, Node is single-threaded. Is that good or is that bad, right? And is this a bottleneck in scaling Node.js applications by itself? I see it as a great advantage. So if you look at uh, the origin of uh, asynchronous programming, right, if you go back to this, this has been done in operating systems way back in, you know, Windows as well and original, you know, uh, Unix-based uh, handling. And then you saw the emergence of middleware, uh, classic middleware. Where Wait, so you're saying the, the Unix-based model is multi-threaded? It is. But if you look at how we were dealing with POSIX threads on the Unix systems, right, there was some kind of uh, orchestrator which was dealing with all the operating system threads and delegating tasks for I.O. operations. Okay, and if you take the same model over to classic middleware, uh, even in Java land, right, you had message-driven beans, and then you know classic middleware like the Tibcos and all those emerged, which were traditionally doing asynchronous message-driven programming. So you were not really, and that allowed them to scale at uh, based on events at an extremely uh, highly scaled model, right? So coming back to uh, the single-threaded nature of it, the way it works is. Um, Think about it this way, right? You have a set of requests coming in and event loop is essentially a postmaster or an orchestrator process. The event loop itself runs single-threaded, but it goes and accepts all these requests simultaneously, but it does not go and uh, take over the execution of the request. It's essentially a delegator. What it does, it picks up an operating system thread and passes off the delegation of, of the request if in terms of I.O. operations to that operating system thread. If in the Unix land, this could be a simple POSIX thread. 
And so a request comes in from a user perspective, the event loop returns what is called as a pointer, which is essentially callback. And then the operating system thread picks it up, does the backend IO processing, serves the response back. However, the event loop remembers the route, the memory pointer that it used for the callback. So because it keeps in memory all these routes, it can then attach the appropriate IO response back to the originating request. However, while it's doing this, um, you know, when it gets a request, handing off back to the um, uh, POSIX thread, it does not actually wait for that request to com complete. It just keeps moving on, right? So first request comes in, delegation, next, 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 and so on, right? So it's obviously, you know, um, it does not have that traditional waiting bottleneck that we encounter in a Java world or a .NET or a rather thread-based world, right? I myself used to be a Java architect for about uh, 13, 14 years. And classically, the way we scaled JVMs or CLR systems was we operated off a thread pool. So we'll say, hey, you know what? Let's spin up 1,024 threads. And when every request comes in, it essentially consumes a thread and that thread has to make a backend IO operation. And while that IO operation completes, that thread is waiting. Now, if you had a lightning fast backend, which would respond in a nanosecond, uh, you are all cool. You'll never run out of, you know, you'll never uh, consume all your thread pool ever because, you know, the as soon as the operation is done, the thread is returned back in the pool. However, the fact is in production grade systems, uh, backend operations or disk operations are generally uh, slow. And when you do this, your threads are consumed for that time when you are doing that IO operation. And what happens is if you have huge concurrency on the front end, which now in the new world you will see with mobile apps, right? Because mobile apps, you are getting a lot of tiny events. You're not really serving up web pages. You have things like infinite scroll going on and you are getting event-based data or IoT sensor-based apps. These are requesting event-based data. So you have huge concurrency but when it tiny fragments of data, um, the server uh, or the JVM or the CLR won't know the difference between an event uh, which is an HTML page or an event which is a sensor event. It still treats it as a single thread. So what happens is this can easily fill up your thread pool and your threads will start waiting. This is the essential problem uh, that Node.js is solving due to the entire asynchronous way of processing events. So I think that was a great explanation. And just to drill on that a little bit more mm -hmm. um, so that our, our listeners really understand, maybe you could talk in a little more specific detail about an example of IO that, like a typical example of IO that, that Node would be a good solution for. So because as I understand, the IO problem was basically the impetus for Ryan Dahl creating Node. Correct. So, so what, what would be a good example? I mean, you talked about infinite scroll. Mm -hmm. We could, we could uh, use that as an example or, or whatever you think is a, is a good example. Yeah, so if you are traditionally dealing with I.O., we are here, uh, let's define what is I.O. first, right? What does an I.O. operation really mean to note, okay? So we all talk about the event loop being single-threaded. However, for memory and uh, network operations, it is actually multi-threaded. Right? So it actually uses the thread pool of the operating system threads to do those I.O. operations. Now, I.O. is anything that is attached to a callback. So when you get a request in Node, and uh, what a Node gives you is a callback, 
and that callback is supposed to do an IO operation for you. Okay, and that could be a database call. Uh, it could be as simple as consuming a backend REST call. It could be writing a file to disk or maybe re reading from disk, right? It could be a disk operation as well. Uh, or it could be anything to do with uh, memory segmentation, right? So um, even if you look at garbage collection, the way it works, you know, when you actually instantiate new objects in memory, uh, you have to talk directly with the RAM, right? However, you know, as your objects exit the scope, execution scope of your applications, uh, then, you know, the garbage collector takes over and, you know, it goes and cleans up your memory. But the application is no longer dealing directly with the RAM, uh, you know, post the first allocation of the objects, right? So you are, in a way, these are all general I.O. operations. So if I take a use case of what is an application, I'll tell you first what are the application people are building in Node. So Node, I would say, is highly optimal for building, let's say, a WebRTC application, right? So these are, we see them uh, a lot, where you are looking at, you know... Web, uh, did you say WebRTC? Yeah, WebRTC. Uh, what does that stand for? There's a real-time web, real-time communication. Oh, real-time communication. Okay, yeah, sure. so if you're looking at things like, you know, building... So like Facebook. Apps, yeah. So if you're looking at platforms like Talkbox, you know, uh, you name it, right? Like uh, not not everything in Google Hangout is, um, you know, was built on Node, but a lot of newer players, right, who are exploding WebRTC as a platform for delivering video and voice content are using Node, right? So that's one good use case. The gaming industry is using Node extensively because, again, it's the same use case of uh, real-time communication using WebSockets you know, for communication, uh, for end-to-end -end, uh, or peer-to-peer -peer communication. So, okay, so, so just, just to clarify, to give a, a, a higher level picture of how this might look, is like the client or the, the user has, you know, he's got a, his mobile device, he's got some chat application open, basically, and every time he sends a message to his friend, that chat message hits the server, and then the server uh, receives that message, we'll say it's a RESTful request, and then that hits the node stack, right, on the server side? That is correct. However, if you could even implement the server side logic itself in uh, node, and if you were able to share the client and the server side models somehow, right, the state of it, uh, you will be cutting down a lot of latency along the wire. So it really makes it, uh, so that's where you will see node both on the front end as well as in the back end in case of, let's say, gaming type industries. Oh, okay. Okay. So it's essentially, you know, your speed of execution. But I would say these are some use cases, you know, which I've seen different people use innovatively. Some of them are using Node for, let's say, screen scraping and single page apps as well. But if you really look at the number one use case that I would say 80 to 90% of the industry is using for Node.js, that is to build APIs. Okay. And when we talk about APIs, these APIs are powering mobile. And when we say, let's take an example um, of, oh, I have a mobile application. If I have a big company enterprise and I wanted to have like uh, claim data, you know, let's talk old school, right? We always know the use cases about new school, uh, you know, high tech, uh, innovative companies. But is Node going to really help the mainstream enterprise, right? Saying, hey, I have this business data in a backend system, which is essentially I had written a service-oriented architecture on the backend, right? And I was rendering SOAP to all these web application and web services, which were written in Java or .NET, right? 
Now, those soap requests used to take me, you know, let's say two seconds, three seconds, four seconds to render. And I was still okay with them, right? My web pages, you know, I could render static images earlier. And then when the real payload came in, I would then go ahead and, you know, render up a web page in two seconds and user won't complain. Now, all of a sudden, uh, that was my online sales. That's why I handle online sales in my enterprise. Now, my CMO is asking me, hey, can you give me mobile sales, right? So my challenge has that, okay, I can go and write a native, native iOS app or an Android app. Now I need to get this app, consume the same SOAP messages, right, from the backend. And, but again, scale at a very high level because, you know, on mobile, uh, mo my mobile traffic is growing. My web traffic is shrinking. So how do I do that, right? So what Node has essentially become is a glue. Uh, integrating all these legacy and new tech sit backend systems with newer front ends like mobile, or what we now call as the front edge, right? You have various interfaces. So how does Node do that? Um, so Node essentially helps you build lightweight APIs where originally used to compose APIs, but Node is taking it in a different way. It's saying decompose APIs, right? So break down your soap. Maybe I can talk directly with the database. Maybe you are storing, you need to store this data in JSON in MongoDB. And I can consume those JSON or that database table or a method within that SOAP operation essentially as a model. And this model, can I can represent that in JavaScript within the node middleware. I can apply all schema validation around that. And you will see the emergence of automatic APIs, REST API generation using pro open source projects like Swagger. Which so, can, so, yeah, yeah. Let, me, let, me, let me ask you something real quick. So do you think that Node is actually, is there something like fundamental to writing server-side JavaScript that makes this, makes building this interface, that's a glue that holds everything together, mm -hmm. is there something special about JavaScript or is it just the fact that it happened to be that we're writing server-side JavaScript right now, and also we have this, uh, we have lots of new models for uh, backends. Mm -hmm. And since uh, Node.js is kind of this just uh, a new framework, it happens to be that people are writing stuff for it that that makes it useful. Do you see the the root of, of what I'm asking? Like I, I'm, you know, maybe we're maybe we're not using the old systems mm -hmm. uh, basically because they have they've developed so much cruft. But there's not, then there's not anything particularly special about Node.js except that it's the thing that is new right now. Therefore, it's the easiest and the freshest, and it might as well evolve Node. Uh, well, I wouldn't say that's the use case, right? I would say um, three things, right, about Node being on the JavaScript is first is you are now being able to isomorphically build applications, right? Not that Node is just new, it's almost been five years now, but the adoption curve is just growing exponentially. The second is uh, it helps solve concurrency. That's the number one problem, okay, due to the non-blocking mode of working. Uh, third is it's essentially helping me build full-stack JavaScript applications. Is that mono, that's monoglot programming? That's monoglot programming. I'll come to that because, you know, that's another pattern that we are seeing emerging. And the fourth is that the uh, node is essentially from a performance perspective. Uh, there are you know discussions around this, but there is a specific uh, scientific logic why node, if tuned the uh, the best way, uh, can achieve much higher performance than traditional thread-based technologies. Right. So those are the four drivers. And if you may, I can you know uh, touch upon each of those. 
Sure. So let's talk about, uh, you know, we talked about in event loops and, you know, asynchronous I.O., right? And that's essentially what it is helping you propel. It's helping you con, um, support concurrency at a much higher level, right? And this concurrency, this growth is in mobile session, IoT sensor-based session. And, you know, Node is exactly tuned to, you know, uh, handle it because, you know, it does not have the limitation of the thread pool, right? It can almost theoretically scale infinitely as long as sockets are available to handle that. Yeah, so uh, the second thing I was talking about is essentially uh, polyglot pro programming, right? But before I go that, let's look at even the runtime. So we said, okay, you know, asynchronous is good. Uh, but what makes Node also faster in terms of performance is that it's not really compiled, pre-compiled code, or it's not pre-interpreted code, right? So like if you look at a traditional JVM, you were essentially compiling everything beforehand into bytecode. Okay, and uh, if you're looking at interpreted programs, uh, you know, the same thing was happening, but you were essentially doing runtime interpretation. Node uses essentially runtime compilation, okay, uh, or what we also call as JIT pattern. And uh, this is another essence of why it's, uh, you know, much faster, much lighter, I would rather say, than a fat, comp uh, you know, pre-compiled app. Okay, and we'll talk about more detail in you know how V8 evolved and you know what's under the line which is making this go faster. But the third pattern uh, we were talking about was polyglot programming. So what happens is think about Angular, right? Angular has MVC on the front end, or any other you know you could be using Backbone, Marionette, you know you you got your a lot of MVC choices on the front end, and Node itself is also helping you do MVC in a way, right? Uh, now the models that you are creating. If you can share that model over the wire, the, both the state and the spec with the front end, uh, then what you can do is you can achieve use cases like offline sync, right? So think about this this way. Um, you know, in the Java days, there was a technology called as JAX-RS, which helped you do remoting, you know, access the server-side models on the client without actually having to write too much stubbing. Um, so new protocols have emerged. And new tools have emerged. You might have heard about packages like Browserify, which are essentially letting you run uh, server-side JavaScript code on the client-side Java, as client-side JavaScript, right? So you can actually Browserify your entire Node.js application. The second one, we also at Strongloop uh, wrote a protocol called Strong Remoting, which essentially helps you share that model. So you can now... Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Could, you, could, you, could you dive into that real quick? Because that sounds like remarkable if you can essentially put the server in the browser mm -hmm. could, could, could you could you die? and i've actually heard people talking about browserify yeah. but i i haven't like looked into what that is so yeah but that sounds like pretty game changing like so what is that oh it is it is so think about it this way right i created some data models on the server side in node.js right those are my data models and those data models if you look at browserify you can essentially say all these are javascript models and they have to go under some directory structure. Right? Basically, uh, pick up, like, create a browser bundle. If you're using a tool like Browserify, you can create the entire browser bundle of those models and use that bundle uh, remotely in your Angular application. So in, it is kind of an SDK, right? You have to drop that in, in and uh, create, use that browser bundle. But what that gives you, gives you remote routes. And if you're using a protocol like Strong Remoting, uh, you can do this even without Browserify. Uh, but it gives you a way to access over the wire the state of that model and share that model representation uh, on the front-end MVC. So, uh, for example, think about it this way. The, the same model exists on both client and the server, 
and they are continuously trying to sync over the wire. Okay, client side changes, it goes and syncs the server changes to the server side, and server side changes, it uh, pushes it out to the client side. So there's always a two way sync going on. Okay, um, and it's not really rocket science per se how this is done. Um, it is essentially replication, right? Or you maintain two copies um, of exactly the same model on both sides. Now, if but this is—it it sounds so heretical compared to. I mean, you're supposed to keep the front end kind of lightweight, right? I mean, you—you're not. I mean, traditionally, right? This is like this is like a separation of church and state kind of thing. Like you don't want to, you don't want to just say we we're going to give the browser free reign. We're going to give the browser like as much memory as it needs. Mm -hmm. I mean, is this is this just like a, a fundamental change based on like how much memory the the we're giving the browser or no 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 so uh, you know I don't want to absolutely make the front end fat right? right okay and so I'm not going to put any of my controller or my viewer viewing or any of the wiring logic onto the front end. What I'm going to do is whatever models that I generated my data models only those data model specs I will. Uh, and these are like essentially JSON files, right? Uh, each model can be represented as a JSON object. Only those JSON objects I will package and share with the client side. I see. So in Browserify, you can say, okay, go and just look up a directory structure. If I keep my JSON objects in a particular directory structure, you can just specifically pick up only the models and not consume anything else, okay? If you use something like strong remoting, uh, it essentially helps you define the remote routes. And on the Angular side, you can be saying, okay, this model, uh, I'm going to access it local. It's present under this route. Or when I'm essentially setting up uh, routing on the Angular app, I can also say, oh, use a remote route, right? And the remote route, um, you know, the model is exact same model is present there. Now, what happens is for storage, right? Obviously, you need to keep this in sync. So you need some kind of client storage, right? For JavaScript, it's easy. Because uh, we at Strongloop, what we ended up doing, and even like Iris, uh, you know, CouchDB guys, all Couch-based guys actually also did the same, is they implemented what they call as object storage into the HTML local 5 browser, okay? So that's where the models get saved uh, every time, you know, there is an event. Now, if you get offline due to any chance, the model is still saved into the HTML5 browser storage. And when you get online, because it's supposed to sync real time, the model will now try to get synced on the server side. However, if you made any changes on the server side or on the client side, these two models aren't in sync anymore. So when you try to resync uh, over a network connection, then you, can, you will have conflict, right? Because the models are not in sync anymore. So now you can also do conflict management on the server side. Oh, whether do you want to keep the server side models? Do you want to uh, persist the client side models? Or do you want to overwrite them? Is it based on timestamp? Is it based on the master copy or the slave copy? Um, so, you know, these type of implementations have recently started coming in. And I call this what we call as isomorphic JS. They are powering isomorphic JavaScript applications now. Could you give a broad definition for for isomorphic JavaScript applications? I would say um, isomorphic JavaScript applications are those apps which have their own control and uh, viewing logic, either on the client side, on the server side, but they sh do share the state and the specification of the models uh, between the client and server. 
Interesting. Okay, so, and, and then to regurgitate your explanation of Browserify as an, as a enabler of isomorphic JavaScript applications, my understanding of, of how you illustrated that was you have basically a directory structure on the client side, and you also try to have that that directory structure in sync on the uh, on the server side, and you constantly have a, a synchronization going. So if you have if you have some sort of some some sort of client client application where uh, you know let's say you're playing a game in the browser, for example, and you've got all these objects in the game that are constantly being updated. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Browserify would work well because you can look at these different game objects as things that are things that are in a directory structure constantly getting updated and you just constantly sync sync the two is that an accurate description correct you are essentially syncing json objects across the wire right uh, and you know wherever there is an um, you know they are not in sync then you'll have to apply some sort of uh, set of programmatic rules to manage the conflict either on the client side or server side fascinating okay so to bring that back to how node plays a big role here do you do you just have i mean is node just constantly uh is, is it, like where, where what is node's big role here is it being the the application that's that's syncing these two and it's maybe just iterating constantly it like is the single is the single thread of 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 node just iterating through this directory structure making sure things are synchronized no node is essentially going to be your uh, runtime platform for Helping you do, uh, you know, uh, do uh, uh, modeling on the server side in JavaScript, right? Because if you don't do this in JavaScript uh, on the server side, how else are you going to, you know, uh, keep uh, persist those JSON and maintain the state? So I'm saying Node is essentially giving you that runtime, uh, and there are a variety of frameworks in Node.js which can help you create this kind of, uh, you know, variety of MVC frameworks rather. Uh, on Node, based based on top of Node. Oh, sure. Okay. So that would be like Angular Backbone or whatnot. Yeah. So similar to like well, how you have Angular Backbone on the front end, on the back end, you have uh, what I call as ORM-based framework, right? Which are essentially doing model-driven development. So uh, Express, if you, you you know Express, right? Express. Maybe, maybe, you could, maybe you could define for our, our listeners what, what is Express. Okay, so uh, when Node was written, think about Node as your runtime platform, right? It's, uh, it's about 10,000 lines of code. It's a set of core libraries. So the JavaScript equivalent of a JVM. Is, yeah, exactly. exactly. And wh what it runs on is the V8 container, right? So what V8 does is V8 gives you the ability to execute JavaScript. But below V8, there is a library called as libUE, uh, which helps you uh, translate, uh, you know, uh, the JavaScript into I/O or native operations. And then you have, you know, a kernel layer, you know, which you are pulling and uh, talking natively with, right? So, uh, and uh, that's where, like, as a company, Strongloop came into existence because our core developers who founded the company used to maintain uh, libUE, which was the layer below V8, right? Now. On top of it, uh, you know, uh, when you install Node, you are getting libuve, you are getting the V8 distribution, you are getting a set of core modules. These are called Node Core, which uh, and these are also have uh, middleware components. Oh, I want to connect with the backend. I need a set of drivers. Oh, I need to do basic network operations. Uh, HTTP server, for example, is a first-class citizen. So all these libraries are what we call as the core node distribution. So to go to node.js.org and download node, that's what you're getting.
okay uh, as well as a um, set of drivers based on your operating system because you might be installing it on mac or windows or unix or what you have now on top of it to build any type of realistic applications folks use frameworks right so there are what we call as a diy or do it yourself frameworks at the very basic these are construction block level frameworks one of the most popular or the widest accepted one is called expressjs and express was built on top of a middleware called as connect which helped pay and it almost evolved into an ecosystem um, and uh, like uh, if you wanted to build a full uh, stack application like oh i wanted to connect this to mongodb i had a package called as mongoose uh, a node package which was packaged within express as an ecosystem oh i wanted to do uh, templating right um, then you know you had packages like jade handlebar mustache it had a lot of web templating support or maybe if you wanted to do authentication uh, it had support for passport js which help you you know plugged in into active directory oauth2 or do a lot of token uh, validations and all so express went on to became the most popular web middleware framework and i would still say 80 to 90% of today's node js applications are built on top of express okay strongloop we recently took over maintenance of express uh, 6 months back so uh, that's what we are doing from a community perspective along with maintaining node core also right so let, let's talk a bit about about the v8 so i guess you could uh, start off by talking about exactly how how v8 has evolved and how it enables node to evolve so you know it all started with realistically we'll have to go back a little bit earlier right Uh, in history uh, so if you looked at browser right there was netscape navigator uh, around 94ish right and they did not have javascript support and later on they added javascript and then uh, ie came didn't they invent javascript yeah the first version of netscape uh, navigator did not have javascript support that would be surprising <laughs> that was right. way back in 94 like but i think it was like they soon realized that nah you need that right and then uh, the <laughs> very second i think it was like a drop or like it wasn't a major version release it came with javascript support right uh, this was way back in 94 and then you know ie came about you know with 95 and they still did not have ssl and so on right so um, but uh, then you know by that time you know javascript suppose was was becoming kind of a requirement and in 98 uh, you know there wasn't even mozilla right there was something called a c monkey right there was an entire application suite and uh, this was based on uh, the original source code from the netscape navigator right and then they went on to create a web developer a communicator it was an entire uh, application composition package and that's where you know javascript started becoming a first class citizen right uh, because people needed to develop in javascript on the browser side and then uh, all of a sudden firefox came in in uh, 2004 uh, late in the game and it said oh let's make this a little bit more lighter we don't have to support vb script activex but if we we will uh, you know support full stack javascript that's fine now when uh, in 2008 uh, that was one time uh, coincidentally chrome came for, sorry uh, chrome was getting developed right as uh, based on a webkit platform and this webkit platform was exactly the same as apple's safari browser platform okay uh, so they really did not invent it it was more or less borrowed uh, however that being said uh, when chrome applications were written um, there was a new uh, os getting formed called as chromium right 
and there was also like some lacking support for some .NET utilities. Uh, so V8 was actually not created for Node. It was created for running uh, Chrome or Chromium applications, right? As well as, you know, supporting some .NET WCF calls. Uh, however, um, you know, then um, Ryan Dahl originally uh, started the project and then they, he had help from other Node core contributors as well. So there was a small team, right? And these guys worked at different companies. And then uh, what happened is uh, LibUE was getting created. Um, because Chrome uh, V8 could run JavaScript, right? So what you needed was some way to hook this up into the native system on the server side. Um, so B uh, Bert and Ben, uh, who were the founders of Strongloop, they were working on LibUE, along with, uh, I think, uh, Fedor from uh, uh, Voxer, right? So there were two or three major guys working on LibUE. Uh, so they started collaborating and they'll say, hey, you know what? Uh, this makes sense that V8 should be ported over to the server side and Node can be support as a container because not only can it just render the browser, but it can actually now talk with the operating system. It can go do native calls with me. It can do IO operations. So I would say LibUE played a major role uh, along with, you know, uh, the V8's container, which was essentially, you know, high performance JavaScript, right? Uh, to port it over to the server side. So that's how I see the entire evolution. So, um, if if you if you need uh, this this will probably illustrate my uh, a misunderstanding of something. But if you need V eight to run Node, and you don't have V eight on, you know, if you're using Firefox or if you're using Safari, how do how do you have? Uh, or I get I may, I, maybe I, maybe I'm missing something like. Because you know, my understanding is if V8 is specific to Chrome, and I mean, so how how do how do Node-based applications work in in the domain of Firefox or or Safari? Yeah, so essentially, uh, you know, we when we talk about Firefox or Safari, you can't really run Firefox or Safari on the server, right? You are essentially running it on the client as a browser. Right, right, right. Right. Um, now, Chrome, um, you know, V8 was not needed for Chrome. It was actually built for Chromium, which was like they said, okay, let's, can we actually port the browser platform to run on the server side, right? So this isn't really opening up web pages for you, but essentially doing database calls, right? Or maybe doing uh, memory calls, writing to disk, calling other services, right? Uh, so you are essentially creating a runtime platform, similar to a JVM, right? So uh, this was not possible in JavaScript because first of all, you needed a container to run JavaScript. So people said, oh, can we port uh, Firefox? Uh, right, so, so just to specify, yeah. V8 is written in C++, Correct. it's not written in JavaScript. Correct, Correct. V8 itself is written in C++, but it supports the JavaScript runtime, right? Uh, and then LibUE takes care of the underlying native operations uh, for V8, but that's all C code out there. Right. Uh, this both these platforms are written in C, C++. Even LibUE is not JavaScript. <laughs> OK, uh, so that being said, uh, V8 is not your only choice. Tomorrow, think about it, like on Mozilla. Uh, have you heard about a platform called a spider monkey? Yeah, I have heard about that. Right. So you can uh, actually you can port over and run node in spider monkey, too. 
right? If Spider Monkey is ported over to the server side. So all of a sudden you get a new platform. Uh, have you heard of Oracle's uh, new um, platform called as Nashorn? Uh, they recently launched it. It would probably uh, be good for our listeners if you could uh, expound a bit on, on Spider Monkey and uh, the Oracle platform that you're talking about also. Right. So Spider Monkey, you know, project has been there. It was a, a very similar initiative, just like V8, um, to, you know, create a little bit more, not fatter, but a richer implementation to, uh, for, to letting, you know, the browser-based or JavaScript-based applications uh, do uh, more, um, you know, uh, network-related operations, right? Um, and it was, uh, you know, you can actually run it on the server side, uh, but it hasn't gone to uh, a place yet where, you know, it becomes like a replacement for V8. However, uh, Oracle has invested very heavily if, since the past four years. Um, and we at Strongloop, they collaborated with us as well because we were kind of beta testing and helping them out in a way. Uh, so they had launched this uh, Java, uh, lightweight uh, Java runtime platform, um, um, or not Java, sorry. They, run the, uh, they launched a JavaScript runtime platform, uh, which is modeled after a Java runtime platform, uh, but it's uh, very lightweight and uh, it essentially uh, is a similar implementation as V8, uh, but it will it can run on the JVM, right? So if you look at V8, you essentially are just running it natively, right? Uh, you don't have to install anything to run V8. However, uh, this new uh, JavaScript runtime engine is being called NASHORN. It's uh, spelled as N-A-S-H-O-R-N. And it can be deployed on um, Java 1.8 onwards JDKs, right? Uh, so it's a JRE sitting on the 1.8 plus JDK. Uh, but essentially, now it has thrown open the doors for big-time enterprise adoption because enterprises are used to, you know, running JVMs, right? They're probably already on 1.6 or 1.7. As they go to 1.8 onwards, they can actually uh, just implement, download Nashorn and run their Node.js application within Nashorn without actually depending on V8, right? So that's a very big announcement that came in uh, recently from Oracle. And uh, they have also um, developed uh, their projects. One of them is called avatar.js. Um, you know, these are like SDKs that they're developing. And very similar to that, IBM has also developed a Node SDK. Uh, but these are essentially for making IBM products or Oracle products, you know, uh, compatible with Node, giving you hooks, um, you know, to access, uh, let's say if you're running an IBM application, a business map process management application, can you hook uh, into those with Node.js APIs, right? So there, both of these companies are heavily developing uh, API hooks uh, using SDKs. So um, maybe you could give me some insight into the future of, um, like, what are, what are what is application development going to look like? Like, what 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 when are people going to choose to use the JVM versus using Node, for example? If you look at mobile projects today, uh, or even IoT projects, those two, right? Even in the IoT world, IBM has launched a big community project called as Node Red, right? And there are a bunch of connectors out there, very, very targeted for IoT. And they have also started integrating with uh, Strongloop's uh, loopback framework, right? Because what we tried to do at our company uh, was we said, okay, Express is all good. Let's build beyond Express. What drove Java, right? It was not just people don't write plain Java applications. They use frameworks. They use 
Hibernate, Spring, Struts, you know, variety of frameworks, right? Node.js, you need enterprise-grade frameworks. So uh, you will see like uh, there's a framework we maintain called as loopback.io. There are other frameworks like Meteor. You might have heard about Meteor, right? And there are other frameworks like Sales.js, right? These are, I would say, a little bit more advanced frameworks. Uh, they have ORM capabilities where you can, you know, have a variety of backend data sources, just like any uh, app server, you can connect to these data sources. You can have modeling, you can do relationship mapping, customization, you can manage connection pools, you can do API conversion. Well, what I, what I find interesting is it sounds like what you're saying, the motivation for uh, moving in the direction of, of Node as opposed to the JVM is basically... You don't care about speed, uh, you care about compatibility. I would say two things, right? You do care why, uh, how widely can you integrate in, so there are three use cases. One is integration. Third is when you say speed, I take it like, a, it's like a superficial word. Because if you look at one of the use cases that uh, eBay and PayPal did, it was reducing the amount of code you needed to write. Right. So there's from there uh, and the number of developers you needed to write this on. So it was more about a productivity, 50 percent productivity increase for them. So, you, yeah, you, you're, you're talking about emphasizing development speed over transaction speed. Yes. But yes. again, that yes. being said, there is a third use case. If you look at Groupon or the implement uh, they have, you know, uh, their use case was mostly performance driven. Right. Um, and node for them was like, hey, if I do, you know, fat, uh, if I have writing, you know, these fat web services in legacy Java or .NET, I won't be able to uh, give the same amount of performance to my mobile clients. And uh, if I write, write these APIs in node or these apps in node, then obviously performance, uh, you know, is at least 5x better for me. And even if you look at, you know, all the real time industry, right, be it gaming, transportation, IoT. They are strictly investing in Node just for the performance, the high speed the high and the speed performance. performance. Really? Even what about like like uh, high frequency trading? I mean, does it? Very very interesting. So that's uh, we should when we are talking the greatest of Node. Let's talk about a little bit. You know what's lacking in Node, right? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you'd be surprised. There are companies like Dow Jones uh, who have uh, invested four years. And I would say 30% of their application yeah, stack is now Node.js, right? What? That's correct. That's correct. <laughs> Absolutely correct. <laughs> and uh, we are talking with uh, big financial institutions. Now, there are cer certain problems we still need to solve, right? Like what is Node lacking in? Oh, this is all the asynchronous thing is cool. And, you know, we can go deeper when we talk about error management on all. But transaction management or transaction rollback or transaction integrity uh, these are not very mature in Node yet, right? Uh, there have been attempts at doing this uh, using, you know, promises or trying to include, uh, you know, some kind of green threads, right? Meteor tried to introduce green threads uh, to achieve, you know, transaction management, right? Uh, but in the Node, the normal Node na uh, land, you know, Meteor is a very custom framework, I would say, built on top of Node. They had to implement their own uh, models. So one of them was called as Node Fiber. Uh, but in just the node land, uh, there are a variety of um, uh, libraries which are trying to help achieve this transaction management. So that's one area where node needs a little bit more developing, right? Uh, before everybody can bet like uh, online wire transfers on node, <laughs> right? Because, hey, what happens if that wire transfer fails? 
can you actually roll it back? Can you audit it, right? That needs an end-to-end -end transaction stitching. And it's very difficult to do in asynchronous code where you don't have a context of a thread local like you would have in Java, .NET, or any other thread-based platform. Yeah, so I guess let's, let's talk a little bit about the penalties of being in JavaScript world. So there's the classic complaint about callback hell. Could you maybe illustrate callback hell and talk about how that plays into Node or how Node is able to work against that? Yeah, so if you look at callback hell, what's, what's really happening, right? If you were doing a synchronous processing, right? Let's take a very simple example. I'm trying to call like a reader file, right? Uh, from this, right? I'll say, okay, start reading this file and I'm probably done. And you know, when I'm done uh, in, in the synchronous land, I don't care, right? Because I'm waiting for the thread. However, uh, in the JavaScript land, what I want to do is invoke that function and uh, I want to, when that function is complete, I want to send you a callback, right? Simple. But it isn't so simple, right? Because that file operation could also throw me an error, right? And uh, that error, I want to handle that as in another callback, right? However, if the operation completes properly, then I have uh, the final callback. So now I have a nested callback, right? Now, that pattern can you know, start becoming more and more complicated um, as I go into the implementation side of it, right? And all of a sudden, when uh, you know, you're trying to say, okay, I might have like five nested callbacks and maybe one of them threw an error, right? Because each of these, the request, the execution request and the callback, they are processed of separate event loop events, right, or ticks. There is no effective way that, you know, if some error happens that you can do a staggered, you know, long stack trace, right? And figure it out exactly which callback, you know, threw that error and maybe how to remedy that error. So this causes a lot of pain while really debugging and tracing for errors in application. And this is where, you know, it's also termed as callback hell. You have callbacks within callbacks within callbacks and so on. Try figuring it out, right? So uh, there are certain libraries which took an attempt to you know, solve this problem. One of them was called as promise, right? There was a promise library. So you could promiseify a function, right? It had things like, okay, the, at the basic constructor level, it had like two functions, right? Uh, one was like, oh, you fulfill a promise, you reject a promise, and then you know, while that promise is getting executed, that's called the runtime of that promise, right? So if you say, hey, read a file, and in that, uh, you know, I'll say, okay, uh, read file and you know I'll return a new promise and within that I'll say you know if I have an error I essentially that promise will give me a rejection uh, if I don't get that error then I assume that it's a fulfilled function right now what you can do here is uh, you can now implement a try catch block with, with this right so you can say hey create a new promise uh, within the try block you know you are essentially doing fulfillment and if the try block fails, you are catching a particular exception. But when you do that exception, you know, you are essentially rejecting it. So you are setting the state of that promised block as failed state, right? And then you can effectively handle error around this, okay? And you can even chain this, right? So uh, instead of fulfill or reject, this, there are like simple verbs which help you do this. So there is something like, uh, you know, when a promise completes, normally we say that it uh, has a method called as, uh, API called as dot done. But instead of dot done, 
you could simply say dot then, right? So you can say read file, right? Then function return the callback. So only when you know your function is complete, then you can have like all these uh, nested blocks uh, which are uh, defined. Uh, like if you are going through a loop, you can say dot for each. Uh, you can have like you know dot done or dot map. Uh, or you know use dot then you know you have all these verbs which make your life easier you said you used to be a, a java programmer mm -hmm. how does programming in node compare to programming in java oh it's a pain <laughs> it's a pain it's, it's a pain right and uh, that's where you know i was giving you this simple example why you know promise took an attempt at this but promise did not really solve all of this for me right because think about it in the java world I just had to do a try, a catch, and a finally, right? And I did not have to care about how the thread is managed, okay? Uh, the thread execution went through my try block, got an exception, it got caught, and at the end of the execution scope, my finally gets invoked, goes and clicks right. up. Right, okay, but, but is, is, I'm sorry to interrupt, but is, is it a pain because you're not used to it, or is it a pain because the, like it's fundamentally just feels worse? No, I think it's both. One is not used to it, but again, like I have, I'm like overtaking the headache. Uh, I have to go and implement libraries explicitly to do uh, what we call as thread tracking or request yeah. tracking in my code, which I don't have to write in Java, for example. Right. right. Uh, the, the 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 platform takes care of itself. So there are other ones I would like to specify, not just promises. This is one thing that we are working from the core perspective. It's a library called a zone. So that's going to, I think, change the Node.js land forever. Zone is essentially introducing a thread local into Node.js. Okay. Oh, interesting. So by default, we can zonify express. So you won't even know about that. right? You can just use zonified express and you ex use express exactly the same way. Uh, but there is a root zone, um, you know, so it's a library which you require and the root zone gives you an execution. It basically gives you a wrapper around the execution scope. Okay. And then you have these functions which are uh, called child zones and you have similarly a try, catch and a return block. And uh, <clears throat> when you are exit, uh, exiting the scope of the function, the return block gets called, it goes and cleans up resources exactly the same way as a finally block used to do in Java, right? So if you have event emitters and all those, those get cleaned up. And meanwhile, if you throw an error, it does not go and crash your application. That error is captured and it just sets the state of that zone as a failed state. And zone itself has proper error handling mechanism. It will not go and, you know, just crash your application with an unhandled exception. Okay. Where can people go to find out more about Node or to find out more about you? Yeah, so we have like a few ones. So we maintain Express.js. You know, if you're starting at the, you know, construction block, start there. If you go to Express.js.com, you know, we have all the documentation specs libraries as well. Uh, we do maintain loopback.io. That's the web page, which was, and this is linked from Express web page as well. I would say this is uh, meant, uh, meant as the enterprise ready uh, frameworks, open source frameworks built on top of Express. Uh, we do um, create, we are known for technical blogs and articles. We have online study guides. Uh, we recommend the best ones. We haven't written all of them. We recommend the best ones from the community. So we have uh, sort, you know, created, curated that content. 
Uh, plus, our blogs are like, you know, people are, some companies are known for doling out t-shirts. We are known for doling out technical blogs. We have <laughs> 300 plus great technical blogs uh, and white papers written on the strongloop.com site uh, for the community. We, uh, you know, discussing all these different aspects, right? Both from and, the runtime as well as the dev time composition perspective. And how can people learn more about you? Oh, well. Um, or contact you. Yeah, with they can, you know, uh, if you want to send a note at, you know, callback at strongloop.com, right? They can go to our website as well. But I think, you know, just in the community way and uh, our handle <laughs> is also called callback at strongloop.com. That would That's be the great. best way to get in touch with us. That's very funny. <laughs> great. All right. Well, Shubrakar, thank you so much for coming on Software Engineering Radio. It's really been a pleasure talking to you. No, thank you. It's been uh, really my pleasure, you know, speaking with you and thanks for inviting. You know, my goal and my wish here it really is that Node becomes a mainstream technology. So uh, we already see the huge adoption curve, uh, but it becomes mainstream in the next year or so. Thank you. Interesting. So much. Okay, that's great. Well, uh, well, I'll talk to you soon, Shubra. All right. Thank you so okay. much. Okay. All right. I'll see you. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to SE Radio, an educational program brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine. For more information about the podcast, including other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. To support us, you can advertise SE Radio by clicking the Dig, Reddit, Delicious, or Slashdot buttons on the site, or by talking about us on Facebook, Twitter, or your own blog. If you have feedback specific to an episode, please use the commenting feature on the site so that other listeners can respond to your comments as well. This and all other episodes of SE Radio is licensed under the Creative Commons 2.5 license. Please see the website for details. Thanks again for your support.